Hey everybody, welcome back to Grey Malkin Lane, the podcast where queer friends and allies gather to review and discuss the original X-Men comics from the 1960s. Last week we reviewed X-Men number 38, which was the middle of the big final conclusion of the Factor 3 epic that's been going on for over a year in the old 60s comics. Uh, the X-Men became aware of the mutant master's plans to drive humans into World War III so that mutants could rule over the remains, which the plot doesn't make a lot of sense, but you know, hey. Uh, our heroes split into two groups with Cyclops and Iceman going to an American missile base to stop them from launching missiles on Russia, while Beast, Marvel Girl, and Angel fought the Blob and Vanisher in Russia, uh, and there's a bomb planted somewhere. It's kind of an uncomfortable issue now that I'm realizing what's happening in the world, actually. <laughs> Uh, Professor X and Banshee still remain captive, and lastly, the Changeling is beginning to have doubts about the intentions of the Mutant Master. So this week we're going to be reviewing X-Men number 39, which is called the Fateful Finale, and we are joined by the incredible writer uh, Jay Ferber, as well as two uh, special guests, the artist uh, Seth Martel and the writer Chris Hassan. Let me have each of you uh, briefly introduce yourselves. Let us know your gender pronouns, where people might know you from, and uh, what you might be working on right now. We'll begin there in the order of uh, Jay, Seth, and then Chris. Uh, I'm Jay Ferber. Uh, I've been writing comic books for about 20 years now. Uh, I had a run on Generation X, was uh, my first uh, regular series back uh, about 20 years ago. Um, since then, I've, I've been doing a lot of work at Image Comics and the creator-owned space, and I've also write on uh, for TV. Uh, I was most recently on the series Supergirl on the CW. Which is so good. Uh, and then Seth. Uh, my name is Seth Martel, uh, he, him. Um, I'm an artist uh, and a graphic designer. You might've seen me in a uh, recent anthology, COVID Chronicles by Graphic Mundi, did some stuff for Mermaids Monthly, um, another couple of like smaller indie studios and have a graphic novel coming out soon that I can't quite talk about, but I'm really excited about. So hopefully we'll check back in right around the time this gets released. So You're a phenomenal artist. I have your art on my wall. So uh, I'm so happy to have you here, Seth. And then Chris. Thank you so much. Yeah, uh, Chris Hassan. Uh, happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, I am the writer editor of uh, X-Men Monday uh, over at APT Comics, comics website. Um, we work with, uh, I work with uh, X-Men senior editor Jordan D. White um, weekly to put the, the uh, column together. And uh, on uh, the 28th, March 28th, uh, we'll hit our 150th edition. So hmm. that one will be featuring the X office. So be sure to, to tune in for that. Uh, always such incredible interviews, uh, keeping us informed and excited about what's coming out. I got Ferber right, and then I pronounced Hassan wrong. I'm so embarrassed. Yes, okay. <laughs> Sorry. And uh, I neglected my uh, my pronouns are he here. Sorry. Uh, I, and I'm Chad. I'm uh, I use he him as well. Uh, you guys know me from the Great Malkin Podcast, which I don't need to reintroduce myself. Uh, so we're going to spend the first little while just talking to Jay about your incredible work uh, in in the X Men realm in particular. But you have a quite historic career with uh, lots of superhero related things in lots of different genres. Uh, I want to focus, of course, on Generation X. Uh, even though you have a lot of other Marvel things, I think there is a lot of uh, uh, fond memories from long-term X fans from your Generation X run, which uh, which lasted quite some time, 17, 18 issues, I believe, if I'm remembering. Yeah, yeah I think that, yeah. It, it's, um, I feel sad that that's considered a long run these days, <laughs> <laughs> but yes. Longer than some. Yes. <laughs> uh, tell us a little bit about uh, how you got that job on Gen X and then just what some of your initial approaches or pitches were uh, for your work there. 
That was, so I got that book mainly through, uh, uh, friendship is too strong a word, but, but I knew, uh, the editor, Frank Pitterisi a little bit. I had sort of struck up a friendship with him online, uh, because I noticed we were both big soap opera nerds. Um, we were both general hospital, uh, watchers. And so we bonded over that. And, uh, oh my God, I grew up with sisters who watched general hospital. <laughs> oh yeah. Literally, uh, Frank is still a friend of this day. And we were literally emailing about general hospital this morning. Uh, so it, uh, it has not stopped. Um, but Frank gave me a fill-in issue. Uh, well, I'm sorry, let me back up. First, he gave me a fill-in issue on What If, uh, because What If was about to be canceled. And uh, that was like the perfect tryout because what harm could I do? The book was ending anyway. So I wrote the last issue. Uh, and you know it, it came together pretty well and, and we liked working together and Frank was happy with my work, I guess. Um, so he gave me a fill-in on Generation X, which was issue 45 uh, and then I think around the time I was working on that, he knew that Larry Hama was leaving the book and was looking for a new writer to take it over and invited me to pitch on it. So I put together a pitch for the series. And I think, because I know shortly after I took over, the, the, uh, the Massachusetts Academy went public and invited human students into the school. Yeah, And I think that was Frank's idea. I think I was given that like in my pitch to, to craft a pitch with that in mind. Uh, so that was kind of already baked in. Um, and boy, I don't remember, I know the stuff with, um, there was a human student named Tristan whose dad or grandfather was a bad guy. And like that all came from me. Um, a lot of the different dynamics between the, the characters was mine. Uh, I know, gosh, what else I'm trying to think? Bringing in um, Emma Frost's older sister was uh was something i had the idea to do to just kind of mix things up because emma had been in my opinion so softened over the years not in a bad way but she just she wasn't nearly as morally ambiguous ambiguous as she had started out as uh and so by bringing in adrian it kind of gave us an older uh sort of a, a previous version of emma to play around with to it would both contrast where how far emma has come and give us that sort of more devious, more uh, morally ambiguous character to play with. Uh, and it's just good family drama. That was pure soap opera stuff <laughs> coming through there. Um, and it was a lot of fun. It was, I will admit, I was not a fan of the book before I took it over. Not, it, not to say I disliked it, I just wasn't a regular reader of it. So I didn't come to it with like a fan's appreciation of it which can be a blessing and a curse. I mean, yes, I didn't have the built-in uh, affection for the characters, but I think it also helped me come in with a fresh eye uh, and look at it differently than somebody who was a huge fan of it might. Uh, but I became a fan of the characters over the course of writing it, for sure. Uh, and yeah, it was a great time. And you guys work with the incredible art team of, of, uh, of Rachel and Terry Dodson, uh, who have been long-term X-Men artists in other realms as well. What was it like to work with the Dodsons? They were just fantastic. Uh, I was living in Seattle at the time, and Terry and Rachel were in Portland. I think they still are. Uh, and so I remember taking the train down and just spending the day with them once. So we just hung out and had lunch, and uh, it was great. They're just lovely. I would run into them at cons after the fact even years after we worked on the book, and it would always be fun to catch up with them. Uh, and they're just so talented. I mean, getting pages in from them was always just such a treat. 
just really good people and incredible artists. Now, for our long-term listeners, just to put this into context quickly, the X-Men started out as a school to train mutants, right? It was much more training and less school. <laughs> Xavier's child army <laughs> turned into uh, every 10 years or so, they would bring in kind of some new students. So it was the it was the new mutants in the 80s, and then it was Generation X in the 90s, and then it was Academy X in the 2000s. Uh, Generation X has some of our be most beloved long-term characters, and then some who are a lot more obscure. The most famous easily is Jubilee. Uh, Emma Frost and Banshee were the headmasters. Uh, another huge fan favorite is uh, is uh, M or Monet. Uh, and you seemed to take a particular liking to Monet in general, which I'm learning. I'm learning quickly, and I say this with affection that you love a bitchy character. <laughs> <laughs> They're just fun. It's, it's drama, you know. It, it's I think in a team you want characters who can cause friction. Uh, I, I don't think. And I say this lovely, I don't think I would have any interest in writing like a Monet series, but putting her in a mix with other characters is a ton of fun. Uh, and I also had the unenviable task of trying to untangle some of the M penance stuff that had gone on that I can't even remember it. I just remember it was very confusing and convoluted in terms of who was who and there were twins. And so we, we tried to kind of reset that and make it a little more understandable. Uh, but yeah, I had a, I had a huge, uh, a lot of fun with Monet. Uh, Chris, are you a fan of the St. Croix family? <laughs> yeah, I am. I'm actually curious. I had a question about that because, you know, you mentioned like you had to kind of untangle it. How do, how do you go about that as a writer? Is it, do you kind of come to the editors and say, I want to untangle this or is it like come out of a discussion with the editors? I think it was, if I remember right, I think it was a, uh, Frank and I were of the same mind that it, it was kind of convoluted and hard to, you know, keep track of. And so we jointly decided, let's simplify this. Uh, and I'm speaking so vaguely because I don't remember what we did. I just remember it was a process to like, okay, this is what it was. And we'll say this. And now this is how it is. Um, but I, I didn't get any pushback. Like Frank was in agreement that, yeah, let, let, let's try to, I think a good way to sum it up is get back to basics with it to get back to, Monet is sort of the haughty, uh, snarky, aloof character that we love to hate. And Penance is this sister who's trapped in this shell. Uh, and that's what we try to get back to. And for, again, this is one of the more convoluted stories in X history. And my goodness, are there some, I'm probably going to get something wrong. But Monet is a super strong telepathic flyer. Those are like, she has a lot of different powers, uh, who has like major durability, who comes from a billionaire family in Monaco. And when we first meet her, she has a brother named Marius or M-Plate who can eat you with mouths on his hands. <laughs> I, I still don't understand that character. <laughs> but there's another character uh, named Penance who is a, uh, a woman trapped in kind of a diamond shell who turns out to be Monet's little twin sisters, but then is also Monet. And now in the comics, Monet can switch back and forth between her form and Penance's. There's a lot of confusing, crazy. I'm not quite sure I understand it, actually. <laughs> yeah. uh, um, Seth, who's your favorite from Generation X? Uh, actually, looking back, I think I didn't really like Husk, but I liked her power set. Mm -hmm. uh, I just didn't always love the character that she was. I, I think that uh, Chamber was, I, I think, probably my favorite. Mm. Chamber's incredible. Uh, and uh, did you want to ask uh, Jay any questions about Chamber or any of the others? 
No, just at the time, like I, I thought it was interesting because it was such an unwieldy cast that you had yeah. in so many. Like, yeah. did you have to run every play that you were thinking of doing with them through the office, or how much freedom did you have? Because that was a lot of lot of like pawns yeah. to be playing with. I, I had a decent amount of freedom from what I remember, and it was unwieldy. I look back now. I, I remember I, I think I brought back Tom Corsi and, and one of the other support characters. And I think about that now, like, what the hell is it thinking? Like, it was fun to have them around, but it's just more characters to service. Uh, but yeah, I didn't really get into too much. There wasn't too much coordination to go on because so much of it, uh, so many of the characters we used were sort of unique to Gen X. I didn't have to get a lot of permission. I know I did. Scott Lobdell had done some great stuff. I think it was Scott with uh, Emma Frost and Bobby Drake. Uh, and I wanted to do more of that. I wanted to try to bring Iceman into our book and, and continue some of that weird sort of flirtation they had going on. And we, I think we used him in one issue, but I, I didn't really get the sign off to use him as much as I wanted to. And that was around the time that there was like an editorial change going on in the book. And so I, it, it, things were starting to kind of fall apart at that point anyway. But that would have been the one thing I really wanted was to have Iceman around because I'm a huge Iceman fan to begin with. And I really liked him and Emma together. I thought it was a lot of fun. You are doing, uh, or excuse me, they're doing some great stuff with some of the Gen X characters in the current comics. Are you following the current lineup of the X-Men right now? I'm not. I, it, I'm no disrespect to anyone. I have friends who are working on him. I've just kind of fallen out of touch with a lot of the X books these days. Uh, so I'm I'm very out of date, out of touch. Yeah. So so Sync is one of the big players on the X Men team now. Exactly. They're 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 kind of making him uh, an Omega level kind of crazy powerful mutant in the current comics, and he was dead for twenty years. You know. Yeah. Uh, so it's Absolutely. fun to see them bringing back some of these old characters. Who were your favorites on the Gen X team? I like Sync a lot. I mean, he was hard to deal with power wise, just because of the way his powers were, you know, literally linked to whoever he was around. Um, but I had I I enjoyed that challenge of and I remember we were playing around with the idea that he could, you know, there's a whole thing where like what he like mimics the powers of everybody around him, right? And that we were playing with the idea that he could use them in different ways and sometimes better than the originator was using them. Uh, so that was fun. Um, Monet, as we said, uh, Jubilee was fun too because she's also kind of snarky and um, I remember I did struggle a little bit for the dumbest reason with characters like chamber and skin only because of the accents and the dialects uh i you know it, it's a fine line to walk without making them sound like cliches or uh and making them sound authentic and i, I struggled with that a little bit i like the characters but uh but writing them authentically was a little uh, challenging for me I'm, re I'm rereading uh, Moira McTaggart's chronology right now. And oh my God, people with her Scottish accent, it's well, <laughs> they take a lot of creative license. Yeah. <laughs> I remember being in high school and reading that, but her accent and Wolvesbane and just being like, I can't, what are they even saying? Like what sound, what, what, what are some of these words that they're using? Like I saw, I saw so, she was saying the word very in a book, but it was like V-U-I-R-Y. And I'm like, I don't know anyone who talks that way. <laughs> I remember when Claremont would sometimes have Storm say hello and he would spell it H-U-L-L-O. I'm like, why? What is that like? <laughs> uh, it's a fine line between getting that phonetic, you know, with the way Cannonball and Paige would talk. Uh, 
with their sort of country accent. It's a fine line between making it authentic and making it like a parody or just over the top. Uh, my favorite parts of your Gen X run were the stuff that were really unexpected. The team gets new costumes in red and gold. Uh, yeah. they, they go on a mission with Paladin in Europe and go <laughs> on a train against the rising suns. Uh, there's there's stuff with M-Plate. Monet fights vampires. Uh, yeah. You took a whole issue about Leech and Artie. It crossed over with the New Warriors. I mean, there was a lot of really fun, unexpected things. And I was reading your book uh, in real time back in the day. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I remember it kind of opening up new spaces or, or ideas about what the mutants could do, because sometimes X-Men stories can feel a little bit repetitive when you're telling the same type of story over and over again. There was, you had mentioned earlier about how, you know, the X-Men was a school. And I know that it was a, it was intentional for Frank, and, and I was totally on board with this, to make the Gen X kids more superheroic. And that's why we gave them costumes with masks and secret identities and had them going on adventures and stuff rather than just being students who sometimes had fight scenes. Like it, it, it was a, an effort to, to make them into more superheroes. Uh, and then a lot of it was also me just, I mean, that's the stuff I like, just leaning into the stuff. I like books that can take advantage of all the corners of the Marvel Universe, bringing in Paladin and Madripoor. And, uh, funny story about that, one of my biggest memories of Generation X was that two-parter in Madripoor because the one issue ends with the kids surrounded by the rising suns. And then the next issue begins with the kids on top of a train having just escaped them. And I remember when I wrote the first draft of the, of the second issue, I picked up right with a cliffhanger, like I paid off the cliffhanger. They were still surrounded. They escaped up onto the top of the train. And then the script was too long and I had to condense it and find ways to cut it. And I cut off the beginning. And no one noticed it. Like the editor didn't catch it. No one caught it. And when it came out, fans were like, how did they get up there? They were just surrounded by bad guys. And like, no one noticed it. And I was just like, uh, yeah, you're right. And in trying to have an exciting opening, I forgot that it totally just skips over the jeopardy they were in at the last episode issue. Uh, you you got to just assume skin wrapped them all up and swung them up there real fast. Exactly. That's, that's <laughs> no prize material there, right there. <laughs> oh, you got to always look for no prizes. That's the way things work. Uh, yeah. Your your New Warriors run also, and it's not an X-Men book, you had a surprising number of mutants in there. You had Bolt, uh, yeah. you had Justice and Firestar. Uh, and then my absolute favorite, this is a, a deep dive into nerd, nerd continuity, but there's a team from uh, Captain America, I think an old annual called the Mutant Force, with uh, Peeper and Slither and Burner and Lifter, who, who are just the deepest, deepest part of the barrel. Uh, tell us a little bit about your work on New Warriors. Did I use them in New Warriors? What's that? Did I use those characters in New Warriors? Yeah, yeah, only in one issue. They were like beat up robbing a truck. It was fast. Okay. I was like, yay! <laughs> that sounds like something I would do. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, New Warriors was like a, the opposite of Generation X for me in that I was a huge New Warriors fan. So whereas Gen X, I came to it with like kind of no built-in appreciation for it. New Warriors was something that like I was a huge fanboy of. Uh, so to, to land that book, in hindsight, it was a blessing and a curse. Like it was super fun, but I was so new. I'd only been writing for a few years. And uh, I wish I had gotten a chance to do that book like when I had better chops, I think. Um, it was fun. It, and, and it you know, I had fun drawing from the mutant world and Atlantis and the Avengers. And just that's what I love is being able to use that whole sandbox and pull obscure characters like Bolt and the mutant force, which I blocked out from my memory. Uh, but yeah, that was a ton of fun. And, and doing that, that 
little crossover with Gen X was a lot of fun too. Yeah, that was that was a great issue. I, now I have a lot more questions, but let me turn it over to to, to Seth and Chris for a few minutes. Uh, do you guys have questions that you'd like to ask Jay? But yeah, I mean, while we're on the topic of other books, I, when I was looking at your um, your history there, you did you did dialogue only for Uncanny X Men three seventy four. That was with uh, it was right before the twelve. Yeah, uh, so it was plotted by Alan Davis. I'm really curious about that because I actually I just bought the twelve omnibus and I'm rereading all this stuff again. And I actually did <laughs> just read this issue like last week. So I'm curious. Like I'm assuming that is a last minute decision by Marvel editorial. But like, how do you get in there? and kind of flesh out the story do you have to do a lot of research what kind of timetable i'm this fascinated about this yeah it's it, it's funny because mark powers was the editor on that i'm pretty sure and he is even though he and i rarely work together we did that one issue and maybe one or two other little things um i credit him with with helping me get into marvel because in in my uh uh stupid youth i wrote a basically a, a fan letter to him of one of the x books basically tearing it apart and being like this is wrong like why did this line of dialogue is clunky and why did you do this and and just kind of sort of critiquing it and he responded and was like well let's see what you can do smart guy and he kind of gave me a tryout and and gave me he sent me a, i think it was a scott labdell plot and he sent me pencil or finished artwork for an issue and i think the issue had already come out but I didn't look at it I, and I, and he just like dialogued this, like, how would you do it? And I dialogued it and sent it into him. And I was living in Seattle at the time, I think, but I had gone to New York and he was, he made time to sit down with me and kind of gave me notes on this, this tryout uh, and was impressed enough that he kind of vouched for me when Frank Federici was going to give me that what if issue. Uh, and then later I had moved to New York and I would, go into the Marvel offices from time to time. And I think with that Alan Davis issue, they were just behind schedule and were like, hey, we need this dialogue by next Tuesday. Like, can you do it? And at that point I was like, yeah, sure. Whatever you need, like I'll, I'll do it. And, you know, I was given the plot, given the artwork. I don't know if I was given anything else. Uh, I may have been given a couple previous issues just, just to see what had happened before. Um, but a lot of that was just kind of taking the written plot and trying to apply dialogue to it. Uh, and there was some stuff that was rewritten, you know, like I, I turned it into Mark and he, he made some adjustments here and there. Uh, but yeah, that was back in the day where it was uh, such a sort of assembly line that if there was somebody running behind, you would just have to, you know, they would find somebody to dialogue it. I, I did another one. I dialogued an issue of X-Force, I think, over, I think maybe a Terry Kavanaugh plot i think uh but yeah and i did a captain america as well over a mark wade plot uh but yeah that 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 one in particular was just they were behind and i happened to be in the office that's fascinating it's it shows how much comics has changed too because i can't imagine everyone on twitter who critiques marvel and dc <laughs> getting an opportunity to come I and screen yeah i mean i, I must <laughs> It, it, I, I cringe to think of it, but like I must have been polite enough that he responded. <laughs> but yeah, do not recommend. Uh, Seth, how about you? Any questions? Uh, yeah, just I mean, I think the logistics are so fascinating. Like behind the scenes, did you, when you were plotting, excuse me, when you were scripting for a plotter, did you have any access to the original plotter, or you were just flying solo? No, yeah, I don't. It's a good question because like back then, uh, 
like email was just starting to be used. Uh, but no, I didn't have any, uh, there was no communication. I mean, I, I didn't, to be fair, I didn't ask. I, I think maybe if I had asked, like, hey, can I talk to Alan or like they might have put us in touch. But it, I was just like, that's the job. Just take the take the written plot and dialogue it. And in fact, when we talk about the process, this is a kind of a funny time capsule. When I started at comics, this was like late 90s at Marvel. Most of the editors had email addresses, but Marvel policy wouldn't let them take scripts through email. So you, I sold the fax stuff in, and then it got to a point where they would be like, can you can you also email it to me? Just, but officially fax it in. And then that has since like faxes, yeah. So, but email was still so kind of testy that uh, that they wouldn't public, like wouldn't officially allow it for a while. Faxing, what's that? Yeah, right? <laughs> I, would, I remember coming home from my day job, eager to check the fax machine to see if, artwork that had come in from Marvel. My kids will occasionally say things like, did they have the internet when you were a child? And I'm like, oh my God, I'm not that old. <laughs> I am. <laughs> now, Jay, you've also had some impact on the X-Men and X-Continuity in unfamiliar spaces. Uh, you wrote the Iron Fist Wolverine series as an example. Yeah. Uh, or you made X23 into Captain Universe for one right. issue. Uh, tell us right. a little bit about that X23 line. Or you, you had like a five issue run on Captain Universe and X23 was one of the issues, it, correct? It was, it was like a, what they, I don't really know if they do them anymore, but it was called a fifth week event where if there was a month that had a fifth week, it would throw off the publishing schedule. Uh, so they would do these fifth week events and Captain Universe was one of them. And that was a weird one because I was approached to sort of come up with, I think there were like two Captain Universe bookends and then these one shots with X-23 and Silver Surfer and a Daredevil and a couple others. And I was supposed to just write like the bookends and then maybe one in the middle. And then one by one, every writer assigned dropped out or had a conflict or whatever. And it became me writing like all of them. Uh, and yeah, it was, I don't remember really the, it, it was another editorial thing where they're like, we want Captain Universe fifth week. I think they had picked out the characters, you know, it's going to be, Silver Surfer, Daredevil, X-23, I think there was a Hulk issue, uh, and I just had to kind of flesh them out, turn them into stories. But at that point, it was X-20, I think. It was uh, Daredevil, Hulk, X-23. And there was a... There was, I, there was a Fantastic Four, an Invisible Woman or something. Yeah, yeah, Invisible Woman. I reread it, but I now I've forgotten who the fifth yeah. player was. Join the, join the club. Silver Surfer, I pulled it up. Oh, okay. yeah, yeah. yeah. But the, I remember the Fantastic Four one I had fun with because I, I was able to homage one of my fan, favorite Fantastic Four issues, the John Byrne one where he fights Gladiator with the, with the FF and the X-Men and, and stuff fight Gladiator uh, was a lot of fun. And I got to kind of homage that a little bit. Um, but it was sort of, it was one of these things where the deadline was insane. I really had to like rush through these, these issues to get all this whole thing done. Uh, with no, with not a lot of notice. Um, so it's kind of a blur to me, but it was a lot of fun. Yeah, you did a great job, man. You're, you're a really, you're a really talented writer. And what are you currently working on? Uh, nothing. Well, nothing, nothing, uh, nothing has been announced. I'll put it that way. Uh, I have a, a graphic novel coming out from Oni Press, uh, later this year. I have another series that I'm working on, uh, with them. Um, 
I'm contributing a story to an image anthology that celebrates their 30 years. Uh, so I did a, a 10 pager that features a lot of the superhero characters I created for them, uh, kind of all interacting in this eight page sort of uh, walk down memory lane. Um, what else? And then I'm, I'm also just focused on TV stuff. That's kind of my day job. What is your own origin story with the X-Men as a fan? Ah, boy. Let's see. I'm trying to think. I know that I probably first encountered them with the Spider-Man and his Amazing Friends cartoon. I was a huge fan of that in the 80s when I was a kid. And they did use the X-Men occasionally. Uh, and I remember, yes, I know that I knew Iceman from the cartoons. And then was blown away to discover that he was in the comics as well. I was like, oh my God. And and so when I joined, when I first started reading the X-Men, it was the Paul Smith era. He had just taken over. It was the end of like the Brood story. And the X-Men arrived back on Earth and discovered the new mutants. Uh, and then like Rogue joins the team. So it was that whole era. Like Paul Smith is my definitive X-Men artist. Mm -hmm. He's the one who kind of imprinted on me. Uh, and yeah, that was just a great time in the book. Uh, same question to Seth and Chris. What is your X-Men origin story as a fan? Oh, man, that's a, uh, I think the, so, I mean, my brother is six years older than me. So like he was a comics guy. So I grew up seeing the trading cards and having an awareness of the X-Men, but I don't think it was until the, uh, the Phoenix Saga uh, cartoon story that I really got hooked. And then from there, I was like, I need to know more about these X-Men. And I remember... I think my first issue was X-Men 39 with uh, Adam X, the extreme. Sure. <laughs> and it's like a story about like him meets like Scott's uh, Cyclops' grandfather or something. And I bought it at a Sam Goody. So I'm really dating myself there. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, from then on, it's just like, what can I get? And I, you know, Scott and Gene were my uh, favorite characters from because of the Phoenix Saga, I think. And then it was just like going comic shops saying, oh, Cyclops on that one. Oh, Phoenix related stuff. And just from there, I, I never stopped, so, yeah. It, I'm sorry, did you say your first issue was X-Men 39? The the second series. Not not the one we're doing today, but that, yeah. uh, <laughs> that, that, <laughs> that. There you go, full circle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You picked the right episode to be on. <laughs> and Seth, how about you? Uh, I picked up Uncanny X-Men 254 from a spinner rack at 7-Eleven. And at that time, the team was completely dissolved. It was like the Muir Island saga when everything was kind of just going to crap, which was really confusing for a kid, but also kind of, um, I mean, like it's kind of what makes up the X-Men is like that whole, especially before like, you know, being able to go on the internet and figure it out. You were, <laughs> you were playing investigator through old back issues and the ones you could afford and the ones you could get a hold of or borrow. Yep. So it was actually like, I think like that richness and depth of their history was what hooked me so much because I had to figure it out and piece it together myself. Was, was that the era? Was that when Polaris was all muscular? Yeah, she was huge. <laughs> I think she like just, she like bulked out in that issue. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Uh, you, you, when you look at Chris Claremont's very long around the X-Men and you can see the, the new ways he tried to keep them alive. He, killed them off and moved them onto Australia and then disbanded yep. the team. And then there was no X-Men for like over a year before, you know, like there was, there was a lot of crazy stuff happening back then. 
Um, there's a time, or the, 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 the current comics, Jay, if you go back and read, the X-Men are living on the island of Krakoa now. Yeah. And they have formed a nation. And all of these obscure characters are getting major time in the limelight. Like uh, Tempo from the Mutant Liberation Front is one of my favorites right now. Wow. You get these deep digs into continuity. And it's it's a lot of fun. And we're seeing more queer representation and more people of color. It's not just all the white guys. It's a a huge change. Not in today's issue that we'll be reviewing, (laughs) but in the modern comics. I, I think your work is really, really great. And I'd encourage everybody to go back and look at uh, at Jay's, uh, Jay's work on Generation X in particular, if you're an X-Men fan, but but look him up online and find uh, find some of his other stuff. Supergirl's great too. I, I really enjoyed uh, Supergirl. Um, anything anyone would like to share before we transition into our review of today's issue? Okay, so one of the most exciting things is happening uh, in this issue, and I've been waiting for this for a long time, and we're going to start with just a cover review. The X-Men finally get their own individual costumes, and some of these costumes are super famous. Uh, let's just talk about the new costumes. Now, they, they get them in kind of a throwaway panel at the end of the book, but they're really beautifully featured on the front cover. Uh, and some of these looks are iconic and some of them are a little forgettable. Uh, let's talk about let's talk about Cyclops's new look. And these are all designed by Jean Grey, of course, because that's what the girls did back in the 60s. <laughs> uh, the most attractive X-Men character. <laughs> uh, what do we think of Cyclops's new look? And I'll be posting uh, images of these on social media, of course. I mean, the most impractical sharp belt buckles of all time. <laughs> Like you can't bend over without cutting your stomach open with those things. <laughs> but this is this is kind of a, a variant on his classic look that he's had kind of forever since then. It's the yeah. blue yeah. over the yellow. Yeah, I, mean, I, really I like this simple cycle. The, the enormous belt buckle aside, this is like the definitive cyclops look for me. I mean, later they just take the the headpiece off, right, and let his hair fly free. But it's it's yeah. kind of his classic look here. Uh, it is interesting how they went back. They they had the Jim Lee hair for a while, and yeah, they just strapped that like strap across his chest. But it is interesting that you know I, I think when I start reading X Men, it's like oh they'll never go back to the skull cap, and now the skull cap is like his primary look. It was right. it rid of it, so it's interesting. We also have Iceman who has uh, basically just a white suit, but they added boots and gloves yeah. <laughs> and a new belt buckle. What do you guys think of Iceman's look here? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's also just classic Iceman, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. We get some really cool Iceman shit in this issue, though, too. He He's he's kind of a, a star player in this issue for me. Uh, Angel has changed into red tights with, like, a yellow leotard, red suspenders, a blue belt, and a blue mask. He's got his hair free for the first time, uh, and his, you know, his wings are out, of course. Uh, this is a weird look for Angel, but I kind of like it. I want to jump in. If I can jump in for a second, there the line that he says, he goes, for the first time I really look like an angel. I yeah. <laughs> and I don't think he does. <laughs> I don't understand that comment. Yeah. yeah. No, it's a little it's a little ketchup and mustard for me. <laughs> I mean, it's a little it's a little busy for me. It, it's the one that how how do you guys I don't know how long he kept this look. I don't think it was very long. No, it's it's for I don't know, it's for a couple years into, okay. into the, the others are like classic. But yeah, the angel one, not so much. Weirdly, this is kind of the color scheme that you used for your Generation X redesigns. Yeah. Yep. The red and yellow. Yep. 
Uh, Seth, tell us about Beast's new look. I mean, it's it's pretty quintessential Beast. I mean, that it, that one lasted for a long time as well, um, you know, till he got all blue. Yeah. But, you know, I think really looking back at Scott's look, the more I think about it, it's like, it's so indicative of his character that he's just, you know, he's steady Scott, you know, he's gonna, he's gonna stick with his colors, he sticks with what works. I, I almost think it's kind of like a, a long-term cue on his personality too, which yeah. I kind of like now looking back on it. Yeah. Yeah, Beast is like kind of full-on wrestler. We've got a we've got a skull cap almost with like a, a red and blue. The the red is almost in kind of an X shape. Uh, he keeps this look all through X Factor when he turns back into human form as well. I was gonna say, yeah, this evokes his X Factor look too. And he has the line in the book, like, if only Vera, if that's his girlfriend back, if only she could see me now. Well, you have a secret identity, asshole. <laughs> <laughs> And then we have the most infamous look. Chris, tell us about Jean Grey's new look. Oh, why me? <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I, I like I like the green dress. I I know it's super controversial, and and Jay, I don't know how much you're caught up on this, but like, especially on Twitter, like among the modern X fans, they hate a lot of them hate that Jean went back to this look in the the current Krakoan era. And speaking as the guy who <laughs> filters through X Men Monday fan <laughs> questions every week for the X Office, there are a lot of angry questions about Jean's dress. So, so she's, uh, in like, she's wearing the skirt now too. She was well, her costume just just changed. Okay, did like for, for the last few years she's been back yeah. in this green dress. Yeah, so, so I'm not totally up to date, but I'm pretty close. And I I just figured there must be a reason the the writers have been sticking to it so like hardcore like they were they're keeping that costume so forefront too was yeah, there the, ever an explanation i've i've asked many times the official on the record explanation is that well one like she's not phoenix anymore so i think they wanted to 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 put her back to mark she's marvel girl again um and jordan had said marvel woman just doesn't sound good as good as marvel girl so that's one reason uh two uh when you think about her costumes, her like iconic costumes, it's the Phoenix costume. It, I guess it's the Jim Lee costume. They just felt like this was the costume that was like that went with Jean, just Jean. Um, so I'm sure there's a lot of holes you can poke in that, but <laughs> that's the official answer I've gotten. Um, yeah, Chad, I don't know what your thoughts are on it. I, I I don't know. Uh, when they first started the Krakoan era and they resurrected Jean Grey, because they can do resurrections on the island now, Jay. Everybody, I, I did hear about that. And yeah. that to me feels like how i don't know. it's interesting it's it's almost like the asgardian gods if you die you can come back uh and, and they they have mutants who use their powers together to, to make people resurrected it's kind of an interesting thought it, it, it adds a lot to the psychology uh but, but yeah take away the fake it can that's my gut reaction i think, well, I think it's the reverse uh, what i find so interesting about it is like x-men die all the time so I think it got really old, and especially before this era, everyone was just dying as like sales stunts. Right. So now death is off the table completely. Okay. So it actually makes it a lot. It kind of flips it. So now it's uh, now now it's kind of exciting to see. Like, like even Thunderbird is coming back now. He he just came back. So it's like oh, I actually want to read about Thunderbird because you know. Uh, we don't no, you're about, right. So. That, that's I hadn't thought of it that way. That's, that's well, and, and there's interesting things being explored. Uh, there's there's a character named Kid Omega who keeps dying and giving orders to like, hey, give me a bigger dick when I come back or change my eye color. Uh, there's there's characters who have had, you know, monstrous things happen to their body or weird mutations and they're coming back in new forms. Perfect. It adds some complexity to it. It's really interesting. Yeah. 
Nightcrawler too, who's a who's a, a character whose faith and religion is so important to him. When you can't die, that that sets Nightcrawler off off on a path of like, well, what do we what do we live for now? So right, right, a lot of lot of yeah. interesting stuff happening, yeah. And weirdly, they did this in uh, Spider-Man a few years back. Dan Slott did a run where characters were coming back in cloned bodies. Uh, and, and it's it's an interesting concept. Anyway, to answer the question, when Jean first came back in the green dress, it seemed like there was a lot of hints about, like, this is important. And I almost wondered, you know, did they bring back 60s Jean? And this is still her fashion preference, but they've never really <laughs> taken it anywhere. Uh, she's super prominent in the books now. Uh, but yeah, we have this very controversial yellow mask with the red or with the green dress and the black belt. I think it's a great look for the '60s. It's very, um, it gives me uh, Get Smart vibes, or yeah. you know, kind of like those old '60s spy thrillers. Uh, I, I think it's fantastic. I, I, I love the new looks. We've had uh, we've had 38 issues of the yellow and blue, so it's kind of nice to see them in uh, new forms. Um, so let's start. We uh, we have a, a, a book called the fateful finale and i love alliteration so whenever we do the podcast announcement jay i'm going to ask your permission can i say the fateful finale featuring faye ferber <laughs> i'm just kidding by all means <laughs> uh so we have roy thomas we have the new artist don heck back on the book uh uh, uh inkers is uh, vince coletta and letter is uh letterer is Artie simic um and let me uh let me turn it over to seth to cover the first five pages for us Sure. Um, <clears throat> we start out with the mutant master overlooking his kind of unexplained viewing area that he has these kind of spy video screens on the two two issues, excuse me, two, two different teams that in the last issue have been separated of the X-Men where Scott and Iceman have been in the southwestern U.S. Uh, while the other half are on the other side of the Iron Curtain, which they never really explain what, you know, how far into it they've gone, but they're just somewhere in Eastern Europe. And uh, I also really like just, there are three arrows explaining. They over-explain without really telling you all that much too. It's, there's a lot of words going on on this page. And there's just a lot of boxes. As a graphic designer, it's my full-time job. I'm like, holy crap, you've layered so much stuff in here. But it's, that's just how the X-Men were back then. And I also think that they've started miscoloring the Mutant Master into the Changelings colors at this point, too. Oh, yeah, yeah. So there's the quality control is, is kind of wonky here. Um, so right here, uh, also their explanation of the last episode is why read on McDuff, which is really also kind of crazy. They're like, we're not going to tell you everything that's happened so far, but go ahead. Just keep flipping ahead and you're going to get there. Uh, so... The Mutant Master is watching these two uh, events unfold and he's excited about his uh, devious plan. And so that's about all that happens really on the first page, except uh, for the Blob uh, being there without explanation as well, unless you read the last episode. Yeah, and Blob's position unconscious, he's like legs bent, hips up. I, I don't know what's happening there. And Cyclops is like very triangular body is, is very uncomfortable. <laughs> he's very like, rah, rah. it's like an X shape. I don't know, just pointing yeah. out those are strange positions for both of them. It just feels like this was, I mean, Don Heck is a great artist and this one really feels kind of scribbled in real fast because there's some crazy stuff happening. Shadows that don't line up. Yeah, like you said, like the shadowing makes Bob looks like he's arching his back for no good reason. There's some crazy things happening. Yeah, it's, but, a, it's, it's a strange page. And so... Um, 
unless anybody has any other strange reactions to the first page, I can move on to the next. <laughs> yeah, go ahead, man. <laughs> uh, so after the uh, author offers a coin toss to find out where we're going to go in the story, uh, they say that Cyclops and Iceman works. There's kind of like a strange narrator happening here, but it uh, it's, it's moving the plot along, which is fine. So um, they're in the middle of being strafed by fighter jets and Cyclops tells Iceman to build an igloo, which I thought was to protect them. He said, no, the sun reflects off it and makes their shots go wild. And I don't really get that logic, but it works again for the story. <laughs> so then they run inside um, to continue on their mission and they freeze a couple guards who can also talk through the rice coffins, which logically, again, you're just going to go with. And uh, Iceman tries to explain their mission to the frozen guard, but there's no time. But Iceman and Cyclops also waste a lot of time talking about how there's no time to waste time talking, but also spend a lot of time in exposition in the last panel with a lot of, lot of word bubbles. So it's, I remember in your, your conversation with Roy Thomas that, you know, he was having the art get done and he was kind of writing it in later. And sometimes yeah. looking at it, you're like, I think Roy Thomas is figuring this out as it goes. I'm figuring it out as it goes here because he's just really trying to explain it in the spaces that he can figure out where maybe there's some open space. There, there's a lot of telling and a very little show. <laughs> yeah. uh, yeah. Iceman, Iceman's often a bit character. He's so easily overlooked in these early books, but his powers here are really fucking impressive, actually. He's, uh, he's doing a lot just on page two. There's like four different uses of his power in different ways. Uh, it's, it's pretty impressive. You get kind of a hint that he's an Omega Mutant once in a while. I think it's the most visual, you know, really, if you think about what the artist could do at the time with the other powers, you know, Jean just had dotted lines coming out of her head. Scott just had like two straight lines that formed a big red thing that exploded. But Iceman could really have like some diversity in the panels. You know, he, yeah. could, he could do all sorts of cool shapes that would fill up space and, and, and kind of like pinch hit, you know, for like for the story. So I think that's really helpful too for him. Yeah, he's great. Um, so at the last panel, yeah, he's, he's covering up an entire filtration system where there was going to be gas, sleeping gas that was going to uh, put all everyone to sleep. So that's that's another clutch move from Iceman there for the story. I like uh, Thomas was sleeping gas. I, I like how much Cyclops is just bossing him around left and right. Do this, not do that, do this. And he keeps calling him lad too. I'm like, how old are you? Bobby just turned 18. <laughs> But I mean, how old is Cyclops? He's not that much older. Yeah, he's probably 19 or 20. Yeah, <laughs> lad. <laughs> 50 at heart. <laughs> <laughs> Always, forever 50. <laughs> I did find the, uh, <clears throat> I know you alluded to this earlier, Chad, but like the mentions of World War III and the nuclear holocaust and the uh, uh, Russia, US, it was a little depressing to be reading this <laughs> at this time, but uh, that's that's there. I'm, I'm, I'm in a stage in life, oh, this is very different content, where I can check the news for like 15 minutes in the morning and then I have to shut it down. It's like, uh, I feel like I feel like Trump's president again, where like I'm just constantly like, whoa, like I don't know what to do with all of this shit in my brain. It's heavy right now. The world's a heavy place. My apologies, go ahead. Oh, I was just gonna say, reading this last, no, no, reading this last night compared to when I first read this, when you were talking about this issue, it's a big difference. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's a heavy, it's a heavy story in that context. I keep us going on page three, man. 
Sure. Um, so things changed right after the, they get attacked right after filling up the air, air filtration system with ice and a giant insane phallic looking tentacle suction cuff thing comes out and attacks them, which is just so bizarre of, of a, a thing that apparently Don Heck decided that he was just going to fill up the panel with because it, it's, it's, it's a crazy looking device. And, uh, and it says, thump. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a suction cup noise. <laughs> and it, uh, yeah, so it plasters them against the wall. And uh, Scott yells, it's uncanny. It's as if it was specifically designed to capture us. Use your powers on it fast before any more guards can get here. But the, their powers don't work and they can't figure out why, except for, well, for one panel. And then again, you're just kind of like, what, what exactly is Iceman doing with his hand in this panel? There's I would a, love to ask Don Peck, like Don Heck, excuse me, like, what was the intention of this? Just his hand and a word zap. <laughs> I yeah, I don't know. I think it's just showing that his powers are ineffective. But yeah, there's okay. not, that's a weird panel for sure. Yeah, it made you almost think of like what Roy Thomas's panel direction was, and it must right. just have been like your power, like their powers don't work in this panel. Yeah. And, well, so, it makes me wonder if there is, if, he, if he was even giving panel directions or if it was Marvel style. No, yeah. And then Roy, Roy Thomas, Roy Thomas firmly used the Marvel method, so I'm guessing this is Don Don Heck's interpretation yeah. of they're fighting the military, and then you right. know, don't forget Mastermind and Eunice are there. <laughs> <laughs> I do wonder if sometimes like artists would just throw in like a random panel just to screw with the writer. Like here's the Iceman's hand falling asleep with a zap. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, after the, the sleepy hand over here from Iceman, Master, Mastermind reveals himself and uh, threatens them again with death and they'll be victorious. Um, and the he pulls out the crazy androids that have been coming and going in their insane costumes that I kind of love, kind of hate. They're, they're ridiculous looking. They've been jumping about, like helping out Factor Three through this whole episode, whole story arc. They're so, like uh, they're like men wearing purple condoms. It's a it, <laughs> they're weird little dudes in the background. They're, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Here we are. And uh, then, um, without any visual explanation, the next panel, the, the illusions just vanish because Cyclops told them to concentrate and they would go away. And I didn't think that's how illusions worked, but <laughs> now that's how they work. <laughs> and then um, after they concentrated hard and they went away, then all of a sudden Unis just comes out because they just need to keep that barrage up of the story. So Unis jumps out and again, there's no real showing of his force field, but we're just kind of getting the idea that Cyclops is bouncing, his, his optic glass are bouncing off of it, which is, I guess that kind of works. And then and, uh, Seth, Seth drew Mastermind for me over there on the wall. God, I can't point on this camera. And then Unis is right next to him. Done by the pastel ray. So yeah, anyway, my little nerdy 60s wall. Yeah. So then if you switch the page, then we're going over to the uh, other captured set of X-Men, Gene, Hank, and Warren. And I, I kind of like this page a little bit more because it shows Gene getting a little bit stronger with her powers and practicing what, 
what she's been trying all along and actually getting them out of a jam as opposed to just, uh, you know, she does, she doesn't just pick up the key. She actually lifts the guard up, which is like a big step for her. I thought that was actually kind of cool. Yeah, so she gets the guard that has them locked away, gets him lifted out of his chair, Hank grabs them. And then she grabs the keys and they're, so they're, they're working together. And that's a, uh, I think, I think this panel, I think this page actually works with both the script and the pacing, which is kind of a nice change up here. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's my, my one thought when reading this comic was Jean is like the MVP in this one. She does the most stuff and yeah. kind of was, we'll get to that in the next page, but <laughs> I, yeah, I agree. Jean, Jean and Bobby are often the ones left out the most. And I feel like they get the most action in this issue. Yeah. Kind of. She like, she grabs the briefcase on the next page. It's got the bomb in it. She figures it out, but she never really lifts it further than like over arm height. <laughs> well, it's a satchel. She says satchel. satchel. <laughs> Yeah, that satchel comes up a lot, and I was really confused why they were just holding real tight to saying that word over and over again. <laughs> so yeah, so they uh, on the next page after they they start to escape, and then uh, they run into I assume it's the Russians, but some you know it's it's the bad guys, and uh, oh yeah, because Hank actually understands they're Russian because he took learn Russian fast on records, which is great. <laughs> that's the most hank thing i can think of actually yeah <laughs> and so as hank gets attacked iceman swoops in through a window you don't see the window but he just kind of swoops on in and that's when uh marvel girl comes and figures out that the satchel has the bomb in it and just as she lifts it up then the blob comes to from from nowhere lots of people pop in from nowhere and uh the blob pops out Punches, punches out Hank, gets in a little bit of a fight, knocks him out again, and then in one fell swoop, grabs a satchel from the air from with the six feet high that Gene's got it just kind of floating around there. And uh, she says, it's faster than, he's faster than I thought. He's got the briefcase, must get it back or we're doomed. And of course, every time the blob shows up, someone has to crack a weight joke because that's just the constant with him. Beast calls him a harebrained hippo. Like, uh, we're going to, we'll talk more about that in a future episode, but I love the blob. And every time he shows up, it's just constant weight jokes and it's exhausting. <laughs> um, yeah. He's well, about to blow them all up. Yeah. <laughs> um, the question. So at this time in X-Men history, did Jean, Jean only had telekinesis, right? She wasn't. Correct, yeah. No, she's about to reveal her telepathy in several more issues. But yeah, it's uh, it's coming, but not yet. No, she mentally probes them right here to figure out. That's what out. I was going to ask about. Yeah, what does that mean with telekinesis? What, what yeah, I was, I was going <laughs> to point that out. I think she's kind of using her tele, like telekinetic powers to kind of feel the room. And she found something there. Because we also see Xavier doing this with his powers sometimes. He'll sense electronic equipment or he'll find something telepathically. There's like some sort of way you can use your focused powers in a, in a way. But yeah, Jean does not, she's not aware of her telepathic abilities at this point. Um, so yeah, I mean, she's the satchel. She's got the satchel. Uh, <laughs> she, is it my turn? I think it's my yeah, turn. Yeah, yeah, keep going, man. <laughs> I'm, trying, I'm trying to remember what's going on here. So yeah, she, so uh the blob takes the satchel because the blob wants to take them all out and blob's belief is that uh he will be uh, impervious to the blast so it'll only kill the x-men but um then we cut back to a little cliffhanger there before we resolve that plot we 
we come back to Cyclops and Iceman fighting Unus and the the uh, the other guys, these soldiers. Um, not a lot happening here. Just a lot of action. Uh, Bobby guys. Bobby makes a, a snow shovel out of ice and whacks the soldier in the <laughs> face. I think is great. <laughs> he does create fog as well. So uh, these, these soldiers are notice that the X Men have escaped. Well, but isn't he using fog? Isn't Cyclops helping to do that? With yeah, we get like a continuity. Isn't this the whole heat versus force yeah. issue raising its head again? Yeah. Yeah, we see we see examples in the '60s where they treat Cyclops's optic blast like it's a heat blast instead of a force blast. But we get a weird example of kind of mutant symbiosis, which is a, a huge thing in the comics currently. Is people using their powers together to create new things. So if Cyclops is melting uh, Iceman's snow, it's creating like a mist that allows them to escape uh, and cover their tracks. It's kind of cool. an interesting way. It doesn't track with how his <laughs> beams are supposed to work. Yeah, I guess it's force. He's hitting it so hard. It's, it's oh, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> That's exactly what Roy Thomas is thinking. Right. <laughs> um, so we get back to the main plot of the book, which is the satchel, the explosive satchel. And uh, so Jean, this is where I was very impressed by Jean, because she's trying to reason with the blob and explain that the mutant master doesn't care whether or not the blob lives. Um, and blob pretty much was like, yeah, you got a good point. <laughs> and uh, so then he, he bails, but he still wants them to, to blow up. Um, and Gene says, look, it's vibrating violently. Um, then Angel takes it. They throw it out of there. It explodes in the air. Um, and Angel Angel calls himself uh, Juan Marichal. I had to look this guy up. It was a, like a world-famous pitcher back in the days, like a Hall of Famer back in the 60s. So there's uh, some 60s trivia for you. Yeah. <laughs> I can't believe I missed that reference. <laughs> um, so, yeah, then uh, we cut to the Mutant Master. Um, and he is, uh, he's, he's bummed that they, they foiled him. Uh, I'll be honest, I, re I read this on a train last night on, on my phone, so I don't completely remember this, but I've got a, the satchel really stuck out. Stood it. <laughs> um, so we fast forward here to the next page where they're all reunited again. So, so where was, where were Scott and Bobby coming from? Were they coming from the U.S.? Yeah, yeah. So they, they've been using the Factor 3's like alien ships, like little egg ships zapping around the world in them real fast. They've gone back and forth from the US to like Europe a few times. Apparently these ships are really fucking fast. A two-page flight is pretty good. <laughs> so, or like a two-panel flight. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, they all they all get reunited again. For the uh, the big finale here, and then we got uh, the other villains show up. We got Vanisher, um, and then uh, yeah, Vanisher hasn't been the issue until this point, right? Right. So yeah, and then they uh, they all get together, and then uh, what and we get they? we get Cyclops's worst optic blast sound effect, which is crap. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds delicious. <laughs> Um, it sounds like something that should be done in the privacy of your own room with the door closed. <laughs> uh, what what struck me is yeah, this is this is a very action heavy issue. Some of these issues, like the, I think, is the Frankenstein issue next? Is that next mm -hmm. one? Yeah, yeah. So that one is fascinating. I mean, that one is just got every page is completely random, and there's something that makes me laugh out loud. <laughs> there's the fact that like um, Xavier seems to be like a Frankenstein conspiracy theorist who really believes Frankenstein is real. Um, <laughs> So, but this one is, a, compared to that, this one, I wasn't laughing too much. It's kind of like a straight action. So Yeah, kind of this, 
you. This whole factor three, three-parter is like a very serious tone surrounded by a lot of nonsensical, crazy, <laughs> weird continuity books. But yeah, this one's much more serious and really dense. There's so much that happens in this issue. It's insane. So the, yeah, they're, they're back fighting the mutant master who is going full supervillain in his pink helmet, raw with fists in the air, ranting about his plans. And Professor X has freed himself and is wondering what the plot continuities are. He's like, your plans don't make sense. I don't get what's going on here, man. Uh, and he basically reveals he's going to destroy the planet and leave it for mutants, which inspires the evil mutants to join with the X-Men and turn against the mutant master. Uh, Jay, do you want to take it on page 11? Tell us what happens. Sure. Yep, then uh, this begins one of the greatest battle royales of all time, which is the X-Men and the uh, Factor 3 fighting the purple uh, clothes-wearing androids. Uh, I mean, it wasn't that great a battle. <laughs> <laughs> that, was not an edit- that was not my opinion. It's stated as fact. <laughs> in the half- uh, and then we have Banshee, who uh, shows up. He, he kind of wakes up, I guess. Uh, because I had forgotten uh, that Banshee started out as a member of Factor 3, right? Well, he was a hero that was being mind-controlled by Factor 3. Yeah. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, So, yeah, and he uses uh, the most ridiculous catchphrase I've ever heard of Sirens Be Praised, which I guess is a take on, like, Saints Be Praised. Um, But he, he finds this frequency that allows his voice to shatter all these androids. Uh, and even shatters uh, the mutant master and his facade. He's revealed to be this alien. Uh, this uh, Unis gives him a few whacks. And uh, let's see what else is happening. So yeah, des- describe describe the mutant master's real form for us. He's been like a human guy in a suit, and Banshee screams, and the frequency reverts him to his real form, which is yeah, he, he's sort of this green, like octopus-looking alien thing he's got tentacles and, and uh yeah he's just i don't know what you would call him, but he looks like a space octopus and we don't we don't really get a good look at him and he says yeah. he's from the planet cirrus s-i-r-i-s oh right 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 is literally never referenced again in any other marvel book ever that i have found <laughs> i think it's pretty it's it's for, for a 60s comic i do think that panel is very cinematic and very cool and just really it's like he's busting out of his suit yeah, and, and yeah, you can never really get a good. I, just, I was looking at this like, what is he? And I, yeah. you never really get a good look at him. It's just tentacles. <laughs> it, it, it feels like a low budget movie that they couldn't quite, you know, get his look down, so they kind of hide it in different angles. And, yeah, yeah, it's quite unexpected. And and it's uh, back in X Men twenty. I'd have to look at the number when they're fighting Lucifer. Lucifer is bragging about how his alien race con- uh, conquered another alien race called the Syrians. And now we have a, and now we have this alien who's from Cirrus, and you know, like, let's come up with some different alien names. <laughs> and it's, it's also so weird that I think Seth mentioned earlier that they had been coloring Mutant Master wrong somehow. Yeah, yeah. It suddenly Changeling is here, and I, I couldn't find him anywhere else in the book. He suddenly just shows up as Professor X again, and it's the whole no, he's the real Professor X. No, he is. And uh, yeah, Professor X uses his telepathy to direct Gene to, you know, to identify which is the real Professor X. So Changeling has been in the last couple of issues. He got a, he got a lot of airtime in the last issue, but yeah, we don't even see him in this one, but we didn't know what his powers are till now. 
he uh-huh. he can change his shape. He right. makes himself look like Professor X. Right. But apparently, he's still on the mutant master's side. After this issue, we'll see in a few more issues. He becomes friends with Professor X and they ally. Uh, and then Professor X convinces the changeling to pose as him, and then he dies. And the X Men believe Professor X is dead. Right. So we're gonna we're gonna see that play out in a little while. But he's yep. kind of just shoved into this book in like a, a weird panel <laughs> toward the end. Like they talk about him, and then suddenly, yeah, it's very weird. Uh, but that's, yeah, that's, that's what they because I, I was wondering because he does die a couple issues later, mm-hmm. Professor, right? And that's the changeling who dies. Yeah. And I'm wondering if I know I mean I know that like Roy Thomas probably didn't plan long term for that twist, but I'm wondering if like if at this point changeling goes back with them and he's the one who's doing the costume stuff and the real Xavier just sneaks away. Yeah, I don't think it could i don't think xavier would have had time to work that out just yet but i'll I'll look that up in more detail and we we mentioned this on the pod a couple times that most people don't know the changeling but they do know the character morph either from the x-men cartoon or from the exile series and morph is changeling right uh so that's that's where most people would know him from oh is he is he really Mm -hmm. yeah i didn't know that yeah, yeah, he's based on Changeling, who's one of the early X characters who just doesn't ever get any airtime at all and has the worst hat in history. <laughs> were they ever were they ever like reconnected as like the same character in in continuity? They don't or ever call like, him they don't ever call him the Changeling on the cartoons. It's like uh through interviews and things they say Morph is based off of. And then when they when they launch the Exiles series, it's an alternate Changeling or Morph from a different timeline that joins the Exiles. I think if you look at, I think he's in the, the Neil Adams uh, X Men issues more. I mean, uh, Changeling, and it's yeah. a flashback to like them making that deal, and he looks like Morph on the cartoon. Yeah, like yeah. Sam hair and everything. Oh, yeah. but Jake, keep going. Yeah. So then, uh, once they defeat, uh, once they reveal the real Professor X, then uh, the mutant master kills himself. He basically self-destructs somehow and, and just dies. Uh, I guess I can't. I think it's Gene who calls it the first interplanetary suicide. Yeah. <laughs> and then they're trying to figure out what to do with him. And Banister says, "Careful, female. We're not exactly your captain." <laughs> and so the they let the Factor Three go. Uh, they part. You know, well, you helped us save the day. We're going to be enemies when we see each other again. But for now, we're going to let you guys walk away. And. Uh, yeah, they take off the X-Men head home. And that's where we have our last page is this weird interlude where Jean unveils their new costume. She just kind of runs off and has them all packed in the back. Professor yeah. X had to give her permission, of course. Right. <laughs> exactly. exactly. He says, he says uh, the X-Men are scarcely children anymore. They've each proved themselves a hundred times in deadly combat. It's time they look like individuals, not products of an assembly line. So your reward for almost dying in nuclear war, teens, is to get your own costumes. Right. <laughs> <laughs> we also, with the with the mutant master, he, he gives me like a Wicked Witch of the West, like I'm melting, I'm yeah. melting, vibes, totally. he fades away. Um, as we as we conclude this kind of very busy, crazy, I feel like this issue is long on intention but short on execution. Okay. Like uh, they're they're trying to avert a nuclear war. There's like mutants fighting for mutant causes. They team up with their bad guys for the first time, which is kind of a cool thing. Uh, we we get to see kind of mutant uh, mutant with mutant instead of mutant against mutant. 
Um, but they're just, there's just too much in these 15 pages to make it effective. What, what yeah. were some of your thoughts as we conclude this? this? I agree. This could have been three issues in, in modern comics, if not more, just in terms of everything that happens to give the moments room to breathe. And I was also struck, um, I wonder how much they pulled uh, the X-Men movie first class. You know, like it might have been inspired by the storyline in some way. Mm. With you know World War Three and the Russians, and uh, there were just some some elements I found similar. I don't know if there was any inspiration there. Yeah, I don't think not that I've ever heard. I feel like this is a really forgotten story, yeah. frankly. There's there's a lot of stuff in the comics in the '60s that's really consequential, like the story about Professor X losing the use of his legs in this fight. Right. They just don't ever bring it up in continuity because it's yeah. so weirdly forced <laughs> into the narrative, you know. Uh, I don't know. Did you guys find this story effective? What did you like or dislike? I, I think one of the things that's interesting about going back to reading these old X-Men comics or really any comics and then compare it to like the modern stuff is you do, you can kind of apply the modern stories and thinking onto past stuff, even if it wasn't a long-term, you know, 60 year plan. But like, I do think it's very interesting, Chad, you mentioned like how the mutants working together and even Xavier's last little bit about like the hope of, of mutants working together is very similar to Krakoa and, and what's happening now. Yeah. So you could look at this and be like, oh, this was part of the plan all along, but no, it wasn't. But yeah. uh, so that's interesting. I also think Jean's, <laughs> Jean's comment about saying that he's dead and then she follows up with dot, dot, dot. Like you said, for all we know, this is the first interplanetary suicide. It's like, why would you say that, Gene? Yeah. Why, why did you have to keep going? <laughs> Very weird. And no one, no one even follows up on that. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like cool, Gene. What happened with the melted alien corpse and the ships and the crazy, yeah. the, base, the base blew up conveniently. Like this was a man who tried to drive everything, or an alien that tried to drive the world to nuclear war. And there's just kind of never a mention of it again. I feel like there's a lot more of this story that happens off panel. Yeah, I think yeah. that this is the, the, a plot for an X-Men Legends arc, and I think Jay needs to write that. <laughs> it was, it, there is, everything was shorthanded, but I still enjoy it. Like, I, like I, I, I liked the story they were telling. It was just told, it was almost like the cliff notes of a real story in some way. I mean, that sounds harsher than I mean it, but everything is so kind of abbreviated. Uh, yeah, you know, yeah. things happen in between panels and stuff. Seth, did you want to add anything here? Uh, just that I kind of hope Putin goes out the same way. That the mutant <laughs> <laughs> I'm melting. I'm melting. Yeah. Um, I think. Knows he's going to lose, hits a button, and just self destructs yeah. it, you know? I mean, that's kind of how Hitler went out. Yeah. <laughs> I just uh, hope I, if that happens, Biden can say it's our first interplanetary. <laughs> <laughs> I think what this issue gets really right, I love the new costumes, which is my favorite part, but we have a year long plot line, uh, which is crazy in the 60s. You didn't do year long plot lines back then. Factor three has been this slow simmer for a long time. We see a lot of characters in this book. We see tie-ins with old villains being brought back. We see a lot of plot lines being resolved and it kind of gives the X-Men a fresh start to move into what is actually a pretty wonky era of the X-Men coming up. We get a lot of really disjointed issues that have fucking nothing to do with any of the other issues. Our, our next 10 issues or so, we're getting a, a lot of new characters. The X-Men are on a lot of side quests. There's weird continuity built in. And frankly, it's a lot of fun to read uh, because it's 60s books. But, but this is the culmination of everything that came before and a fresh beginning. And we heard Roy Thomas in our interview with him on, on Grey Malkin 
talk about how the book was basically facing cancellation over and over again. So they keep trying new things coming up. One of the new things they're, they're trying, and I'll cover this relatively quickly, although it's worthy of a longer conversation, we have five page backups. So one of the reasons this story feels so rushed is they cram it into 15 pages. On the final five pages that we see it pick up from last issue, this is where Werner Roth, the book's regular artist, has now come back to these backup features. Uh, if you guys remember last episode, Professor X goes to Fred Duncan. They have identified a new mutant, and this is being set pre-X-Men history. So we're going back and telling the story of how the X-Men got together. In this issue, we see, or in these five pages, we see uh, Cyclops, or, or a teenage Scott Summers. We're going to learn that he was in town uh, being brought by the orphanage where he has been living. So this is the first issue where we learn Cyclops is an orphan. Uh, his powers activated and knocked an air conditioner down, and he then used his powers to save civilians from this falling air conditioner, but it was caught on video, so the FBI is aware of him. Uh, he runs off and he jumps on a train to go into hiding. We cut back to the FBI office where Professor X is reviewing mutant files, and he sees mention of Scott Summers because a report from his optometrist <laughs> was uh, was brought in. Now, this plot line is picked up on, uh, we interviewed Ben Rabb a while back. We didn't talk about this issue, but he wrote an origin story of Cyclops in a series called Uncanny Origins, if you guys ever looked at that. The first issue talks about the, uh, the background of Cyclops, and it picks up on these scenes. If you guys remember, Mr. Sinister is running Cyclops' orphanage back then, and he has designs on Cyclops' genetic material. Cyclops' powers have activated. He's got a little brother who's also an orphan. We're going to learn much later in Claremont's continuity how he became an orphan. We won't cover that today. But the optometrist's name is, is F. Thierry, which of course is a riff on the writer Frank Thierry. Uh, he has discovered that, uh, that Cyclops has these massive headaches. There's red light refracting in his eyes. And he gives Cyclops what we call ruby quartz to help block his eyes. Professor X goes and interviews this optometrist. And this is the first mention we ever get of ruby quartz in the comic books. Cyclops, is, uh, Cyclops got a head injury when he was falling out of a plane as a younger kid. And he can't control his powers. And ruby quartz is the only thing that blocks them. So in this issue, we get this mention about ruby quartz. Uh, Cyclops is on the run. He's he's hanging out with some hobos. <laughs> That's what they call them here. But the hobos attack him and he's like, no, don't take my glasses off. You'll get hurt. The police arrive. They do take his glasses off. And of course, his powers activate. He runs off and he hears a voice calling him from a nearby kind of creepy cabin, you know, saying, come here, lad, come here. Uh, enter, enter. A Cyclops goes in and there is a man inside identifying himself as a mutant, which next issue we're going to learn. This is kind of an obscure character named Jack of Diamonds. Uh, we'll get to that guy in the in the next issue. But this idea of Cyclops's backstory here, we get two really monumental things. We get number one, his mention of him being an orphan. And number two, the first mention of Ruby Quartz, which again, uh, Roy Thomas in our interview was like, that's just a thing I came up with. I don't think it really exists, but that's the one thing from the 60s about Cyclops that has stuck around uh, is this idea or mention of Ruby Quartz. Um, so as I come to summarize those five pages relatively quickly, do you guys have any uh, thoughts? What stood out to you here? Uh, well, I will note, uh, uh, it's got Fred Duncan as the FBI guy, and he was in first class. So there you go, Jay. That's right. That <laughs> was uh, Oliver Platt, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there is something from here. <laughs> um, and Fred Duncan, I, Fred, Fred Duncan first shows up in X-Men number two. Like, he's yeah. one of the oldest X-Men characters. Um, I think it's interesting how, I mean, you see, like, 
kind of the hated and feared aspect of the X-Men on full display here with Cyclops and kind of all the troubles he's gone through. And you see, you know, really of all the X-Men, the original X-Men, you know, how hard his life was. And yeah. I think they do a good job of explaining why, you know, he is the way he is. Um, so it's pretty solid, pretty solid for a, a 60s backup. Yeah, I love these five pages way more than I did the previous 15 years. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, just from an art perspective, the quality like yeah. increases. There's lush backgrounds. There's like full environments drawn here. And really, if you go through the whole first half, they could kind of be anywhere most of the time. Oh, yeah. A couple like weird contraptions built in the background. Like this is full, like lived in places that feel like this feels like it should almost be like the primary story of the book. Yeah. Yeah. And the art tells the story a lot more uh, thoroughly, I think than in the lead story, where you can feel the writer having to kind of explain what's happening off panel that you're not seeing. Like this, yeah, this just feels, felt more the writer and the artist working in concert a lot better. In the 60s, we basically get three things about Cyclops consistently. Number one, he loves Jean, doesn't know how to tell her. Number two, he wants to pr impress Professor X by being the effective leader. And number three, he is constantly afraid of hurting someone with his uncontrollable eye beams, right? And we get his origin here, which I think is pretty great. And this origin of Cyclops with Professor X involved is going to continue for the next three issues. The next three five-page backups, uh, we're going to keep reviewing those stories as we go forward. Uh, any final thoughts about uh, Cyclops's origin story here before we uh, wrap up for today? Um, often, often our uh, our reviews are really saucy and ridiculous, but today was kind of serious, and we we kept things like very focused. There's a there's kind of heavy content. Uh, uh, what stood out to you uh, as as modern readers of an old comic book uh, who are X Men fans? Is there anything that you were like, oh man, this is this is something I love, or something that I that I carry with me now as a fan? What 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 stood out to you in this issue primarily? I mean, for me, what really stood out was just, uh, and I, it's a product of its time, is how sexist it was towards Jean. Mm -hmm. Like the narration. And now let's see what the most attractive member is doing. And, you know, the, that, again, probably at the time, but that really jumped out at me as quite creepy. Uh, and this is one of the least sexist issues yeah. from the 60s. <laughs> I haven't read a lot of the old X-Men stories. So, yes, uh, I trust you. There's an issue where, where Beast calls her wench, and you're like, oh, my God. Oh, God. <laughs> Uh, Seth, how about you? Anything that just kind of stood out primarily? I mean, similar to what Jay's saying, just, you know, of its era, the, the combination of the threat of the world war and aliens just being like such a major plot device. Yeah. And um, I don't think of either of those, it, like as me as like a long-term X-Men fan, as being something intrinsic to their characters or their team. Yeah. Like I would never think like X-Men fight aliens, X-Men, well, I guess the brood, but... I just like maybe in this kind of like disguised kind of um, very 60s feeling of like everything's kind of hidden and yeah, it, it doesn't feel like an X-Men story to me, even though it is, if that yeah. makes sense. Yeah, yeah. I, I did like, I'm sorry, I did like the stakes. It felt like they had heavy stakes. I liked the sort of international aspect, the intrigue with the other governments. Are they going to declare World War Three? Like that was, I felt it, 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 succeeded on that front. Yeah, yeah, agreed. Well, this is the greatest battle royale of all time, so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I also really enjoy, we have this idea of, uh, with, with minority populations, we waste so much time, speaking as a queer person, we waste so much time fighting among each other instead of just uniting, right? 
And there's there's this idea of mutant versus mutant, but really the threat was pretending to be something else entirely. Uh, it's it's got kind of that Game of Thrones aspect. The world's going to war, but really we're facing these you know white zombies that are going to wipe us all out unless we. And there, there's almost that era of now where we're where it's I don't know in America Democrat versus Republican. So often we're wasting so much time fighting each other when there's so many bigger issues out there. Uh, we're living in a time with anti-gay and anti-trans legislation passing currently. Uh, and we're wasting time when there's so many bigger battles to fight. Um, so that kind of, I don't know, the mutant master as this kind of behind the scenes threat pretending to be something else. Uh, and the, you know, the mutants joining together to stop him, even though it's very rushed at the end. I, I feel like there's those parallel themes standing out. Yeah, I think um, I, I, I'm a fan of the original X-Men run and I know a lot of X fans, you know, they it started with Claremont for them and they kind of write off the beginning. Um, but I didn't really enjoy this one. <laughs> you know, there, there's a certain charm to the early stuff. This one, I, it was kind of a chore to get through uh, just because it was very action heavy. But I think I tried to like find ways to, to make it interesting for myself. And that's kind of like what I said before, like looking at stuff from the perspective of today and, and seeing stuff like the, the final panel of the main story, it's Angel making fun of Hank and saying, oh, we should should add the furry outfit or something. Yeah. And that takes on like a tragic element yeah. to it because that <laughs> happened. And I'm like, well, then what did Warren yeah. think of Hank when he became furry? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, yeah, a lot of the issues around this are all nonsense. We just had Meccano, for God's sake, and we've got Frankenstein next, next issue. But yeah, these, these three are a little bit more dense. This one's a little less fun and a little more serious, but still really classic. Um, as we are wrapping up, where can everybody find each of you online if they'd like to connect with you? And what do we have to look forward to uh, if you're able to announce anything that you haven't talked about uh, as far as as far as what's coming up with your work? I know uh, I, I know both Seth and Jay reference things that you can't announce yet, but uh, let's go in the order of uh, Jay, Seth, Chris again. Uh, where can people find you and what, what do we have to look forward to? Uh, you can find me on Twitter just, uh, at my name uh, and yeah, you can look forward to my Oni graphic novel hopefully being announced soon. I think it goes on sale in October, uh, so hopefully it'll uh, we'll, we'll get the word out fairly soon. Um, but that's really the only thing on my horizon that I can talk about. So. And Seth? Well, yeah, you could find me on Twitter as well at SC Martel. And um, yeah, there's not much I can really talk about. I'm, I'm hard at work right now, but not much I can actually like throw out there. So you're just going to have to deal with uh, random dumb X-Men pictures that I draw on my downtime on Twitter until then. Seth is a phenomenal artist. And speaking as someone who had some commission work done by him, he puts a lot of thought and communication into it. He's really, really good. So look at his stuff. Uh, you have a website as well, Seth? Oh yeah, SethChristianMartel.com. Yeah, so go look up his stuff. He's, he's really talented. And if you haven't seen the image he did for me of Mastermind, it's so fun and menacing and eerie, and I love it a lot. It's, uh, again, on my wall because I really care about it. Uh, and then Chris. Yeah, uh, you can find me on Twitter at, uh, at Chris A. Hassan. Um, and yeah, X-Men Monday, uh, if you have never read it, it's over at aptcomics, uh, aptcomics.com. Uh, we talk to different X writers and artists every week and editors. Um, we get some exclusive images from upcoming issues. Um, we have not had Jay on yet, but you know, I'll, I'll, I'll make sure we add him to the list. Um, <laughs> but on, on the 28th, we have uh, X-Men Monday 150, which will have the entire X office um, answering fan questions. And then after that, um, obviously the... Uh, 
uh, Destiny of X era kicks off. So we'll be digging into all those new launches. Um, so yeah, check it out. And again, doing incredible work. AAPT is so beloved by so many, but X-Men Monday is always insightful. I look forward to it. I learn things, I get things hyped up and excited. And Chris, you're doing incredible work there. Uh, all three of you have been so gracious and kind to be uh, become my friends, frankly, as we have we chatted and prepared for this episode. But what a talented and frankly good looking group of men we got to assemble for this really fun review. So thank you all for being here. On Grey Malkin Lane, we have a lot of really incredible content coming up. We're gonna be doing the Frankenstein issue of <laughs> X-Men number 40 with the writer Rihanna Pratchett, uh, who is incredible, uh, as well as uh, Rowan and Patrick from the It Slays podcast. Because if you are gonna do horror like Frankenstein, you need those guys with you. Uh, so, hey everybody, thank you so much for being here. Any final words from our guests before we wrap up? I had a great time. Thank you for having me. You're excellent. I had a great time too. Thank you for spending your Saturday afternoon with me. Uh, thank you, everybody. We'll see you back here next time on Gray Malkin Lane. Thank you so much for listening to Gray Malkin Lane. I'm pouring a lot of time, labor, and love into this podcast, and I truly hope you are enjoying it. We're seeking to create a unique space here, and I'm really proud of what we've put out so far and really excited about what we have coming up. Gray Malkin Lane is recorded and edited at a private studio in Salt Lake City, Utah. Music and editing are done by my husband, Michael Bell. Gray Malkin Lane can be found on Twitter at Gray Malkin P, P like podcast, and on Instagram under Gray Malkin Lane. If you're enjoying our work, help us spread the word about this unique podcast. Please leave us a good review wherever you listen and check out our bonus content and fan engagement on Patreon. We'll see you back here next episode on Gray Malkin Lane.